Hi, everybody, and welcome to Brokerage Insider, the podcast where we interview the leaders in real estate and technology. I'm your host, Eric Stegeman, and I'm the CEO of Tribus, a brokerage platform vendor. And today I am honored to be joined by a good friend of mine, Mr. Rob Hahn. Rob, welcome to the <laughs> podcast. I, thanks for having me. I, I don't know about honored. I mean, you know, like we've, we've gotten drunk together, man. It shouldn't be an honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're a very busy human and I am. <laughs> uh, have lots of stuff going on. So I, I thank you for taking some time out of your day. Oh, my and, pleasure, and man. On here, especially a, a new podcast. You're always kind of, well, does anybody actually listen to this thing or not? So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just an excuse for me to talk to you, you know, and then we'll get and have an interesting conversation, maybe debate, maybe, you know, whatever. You yes, know. I think that's, uh, you, you, you have this, uh, and Rob has this great podcast uh, that he does with Greg Robertson, who's also a friend uh, at Cloud CMA, they called Industry Relations, right, Rob? Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, so that podcast is called Industry Relations, right? Say again, I'm sorry. Uh, it, the podcast that you do with Greg Robertson is called Industry Relations, right? That's right. Yep. Yep. So sorry, uh, like I, I try to block everything off, but phone calls keep coming in. <laughs> That's okay. I get it. I get it. No problem. We just uh, recorded another podcast not long ago with an yeah. agent who's a high powered uh, team leader. And the entire time his phone was buzzing in the background too. So no, no, no problem. No problem. Now, Rob is the managing partner of a consulting firm called 7DS and Associates. He's also the purveyor of Notorious ROB, that's Notorious-ROB.com, where he writes probably the most insightful commentary uh, and news updates about the real estate industry. And so, Rob, as you know, this, this podcast is really directed towards brokerage staff uh, and mm -hmm. leadership inside of brokerages and franchises. That's, yep. that's the main listener base. Yep. And what I will tell everybody listening is if you don't regularly read uh, Notorious ROB, uh, you probably should sign up for the email alerts so that they're in your inbox. Rob's commentary that. is, is uh, oftentimes years uh, ahead of time as to what actually happens. So, you know, Rob, what I wanted to start with, because I don't hear, you know, I know this story because I've known you now for 11 or 12 years. It's but, been a long time, man. Yeah. I mean, we met, I think, before you started Tribus. That, we were talking that, about the name, you know. Yeah, I remember. Rob was probably the first person outside of my uh, little team in St. Louis that I told about the idea for Tribus. And uh, Rob wrote a post about our company uh, very early on. In fact, I think the next day or the day after, uh, went back and wrote 2,000 words about Tribus, and uh, it, it helped us get launched. So for that, I am eternally thankful uh, <laughs> and getting the word out. Yeah, man, you've, you've grown the company, so, you know. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, the thing that I don't hear you tell the story enough, and I think is mm -hmm. so interesting uh, and worth mentioning is how you got to where you're at right now. Um, because I don't think people know all the nuance of, of how September 11th weaves itself into your story uh, yeah. and, and what you did before 7DS. So why don't you, you know, give us at least the, the highlights of how Rob got to be the story. <laughs> I don't know if that's like that interesting, but I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, so uh, I, I'm lawyer larvae. Right. So I went to law school, um, but instead of studying law, I did. I played Magic the Gathering a whole lot. <laughs> you know, I was on the pro tour. I just started writing a bunch of stuff for it online. You know, this is before, you know, before online was a thing. Right. Um, 
And uh, long story short, I ended up um, going to work for the magazine, you know, called The Duelist um, that was being published by Wizards of the Coast. So I moved out to Seattle. While I was there, they're like, let's, you know, we want to do this something with a new, this thing called the website. At the time, I was one of the key people behind the number one magic website. I figured, oh, let's start a company. So quit that, you know, started that. Did that for through the first dot-com bubble. Uh, we saw the bubble coming, so we sold out to USA Networks. So I went there and worked there for a while, which was really fun times. Uh, left and started another startup, you know, um, and uh, we were doing great. It was a cool concept around micropayments, which wasn't figured out in 2000. Well, the unfortunate thing for us was we were located at World Trade 7, and our second round of funding was scheduled to close on September 15, 2001. So you can imagine what happened, right, when 9-11 happened. Um, and I wrote, I've written about that, you know, on, on the blog. Um, people can find it. So after that, you know, it was just a terrible time, um, you know, for good two, three years, during which time I ended up kind of, I was doing some consulting work, you know, just trying to, trying to survive. And I ended up hooking up with a uh, online agency that was, that had Realogy as its main client. So that's sort of how I got into real estate. Right? But I started off in the commercial side, which I think gives me a sort of a different perspective, or at least gave me a hugely different perspective on, on everything on real estate, on technology, because I was coming at it from the commercial side of things. I worked at Colbeck Commercial you know, for, I want to say like four years, um, after which I left and, you know, started doing my own thing. And I've been doing that since 2009. And so here he is with that extra insight <laughs> from, uh, you know, working from the franchise perspective uh, or the corporate perspective, at least at uh, Colbeck or Commercial. But Robsworth with some of the most well-known companies, the, the leaders in our industry. He's also been a major advisor to the largest MLSs in the country. I know you did yeah. work with uh, what's now Bright or what was yeah. uh, MRIS before that, as well as a number of other MLSs talking about all sorts of things, which he probably can't share with us what he told them about. But <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, most people don't know what I do for a living because I feel like you know, even the fact that I'm working with somebody is nobody's business, right? But my client, well, and me, unless I have to disclose it, I, I don't. So people are like, how the hell do you make a living? I'm like, well, you know, I just don't talk about my clients. <laughs> That's well, all. Why don't you say specifically, like, who is your, at your average customer? What, what kind of work do you do for them, et cetera, from a high level standpoint? Yeah, I mean, from a high level, I, I basically ended up tending to work with some of the larger, larger companies because they're the only ones who actually have the money, right? Because I'm, I'm far from the cheapest you know, guy <laughs> out there. Um, and the other thing that's sort of unique, I suppose, is I, you know, I usually tell people like, call me when, you know, when it's sort of a bet your company type situation, right? When you really don't know kind of what to do. Like, I'm not the guy to call if you want to like, increase your, your, uh, agent retention by 5%. Like I, I'm just not that guy. Right. You know, if you're, if your thought is like, we just want to increase our website traffic by 5%, you know, there are plenty of other guys, including Eric, you know, who could probably help you out better than I can. Um, I think you call me when you have, you're facing a strategic crossroad and you're really just trying to figure out what's the best way of, of handling that. So, you know, whether it's MLSs or brokerages or franchises or tech companies, I find that, you know, the best relationships are those where, 
you know, either the leadership has some truly like out of box thinking, like we want to really pivot and do something else, then, then yeah, then I'm your guy. Uh, or you're confronting a real problem and, you know, and you want to try and figure out like, what's the way out, right? Then, then I'm your guy, you know, so that those are, I, I, those are the types of clients I tend to have, those types of engagements I tend to have. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun, you know? Um, the downside of it is that maybe I, you know, I, could potentially have grown much faster and become much larger if I'd done more of the, you know, traditional stuff. But I don't know. I just don't find that stuff all that interesting. You know, I was just going to say, if you, if you didn't say that line, I was going to say, I think that would be boring to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like I could do it, but you know, I mean, there are people who are, I think probably better at that sort of thing. Um, and certainly a lot cheaper. So you know, I just typically steer those people to other companies, other people that I know would do a really great job. And so you think about some of the biggest ideas yeah. or the biggest questions in our space. So I yeah. definitely want to chat with you about a few of those. Yeah. Uh, you know, one big one that's certainly at the top of my brain right now and yeah. has been for six plus months um, is the concept of iBuyers, Right. And, and obviously things have changed and they're buying according uh, to the, the leading uh, person that tracks these things says that their buying was down 90% uh, yeah. during the virus, but, and, and some of them have pivoted, but you know, if you're a broker out there, yeah. if you're the largest, you know, we have the, a client of ours is the largest Remax in the world uh, yeah. and they do 35,000 transactions a year and dominate the market that they're in. Right. Should they be worried about an iBuyer stepping into their market and, and eating up their listing volume? Um, yes and no. Right? I know that's like a cop-out answer, but let me try <laughs> and explain it. Uh, yes, they should be worried, but no, they shouldn't be worried. It'll eat up their listing volume because brokerages don't have any listing volume. Their agents have the listing volume. Does that make sense? Well, there's an interesting statement that we should right. do. Right. So the thing I think I'm probably the most controversial about, the thing that gets me a lot of hate, and I, and I don't really understand the hate, is because ultimately I'm trying to help out brokerages. Like I like brokerages, you know. Um, you know, that's how I got my start in, in real estate was working with commercial brokers at, at the Coldman Commercial. And I've always felt like the brokerages are brokers and the brokerage owners are the ones who are really you know, they're, they're the driving force behind the industry. They're some of the best people in the world, you know, like actual men and women, like just wonderful human beings. And they're caught in a real bind. So the way I look at it is I've, I've long said the traditional brokerage is dying. And it's primarily because they don't, you know, they don't control the inventory. They don't control the agents. Like their margins suck. It's getting blown out. Um, and I've, you know, really for the past, I don't know, four or five years, that's, been one of my real focuses. How do you turn this picture around? Um, and I feel like some of the broker owners are just getting offended. And, I, and I, I, I feel badly about it. Like I'm not trying to offend people. It's just the numbers are what they are, right? So yeah, from that standpoint, they don't have any listings. Their agents have the listings. And I think the easy way I think about that is imagine taking a listing from, your, from the agent who acquired it and giving it to somebody else in your office you would lose all of your agents the next day. I don't think that's, I don't think that's debatable, right? Agreed. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know to what extent that we can say that the brokerage has any listings. The brokerage has agents. 
the agents have listings. So those agents probably need to worry, but not really, right? At least not for a while, because, you know, the classic iBuyer, and this is one of the issues that we have to talk about, is people, when people think iBuyer, they're thinking Open Door, Zillow, OfferPad. And two of the three have now left that business and are now traditional brokerages. Um, that's only one model, I think, of iBuyer. I define iBuyer very differently. But from that standpoint, like, there's not enough money there's not enough capital out there where every agent has to worry. You know, their buy boxes are small. They're only active in certain markets. You know, I figure the tradition, sort of the real estate agent doing the classic traditional thing, you know, you probably have 10 year runway, right? Before it really starts to get disruptive. Um, but what I would say to that is the market maker model, it makes so much sense for the consumer, mm -hmm. right? And really, if that do you want doesn't to define make sense, what a market maker model is for those that don't know? Sure. Market maker models, what Zillow offers is, right? Where they go in and say, we will buy your house. Okay. And they give you a price and uh, you either decide to take it or not. Right. And I know the, uh, the industry's like pushback against it is to say, you're leaving all this money on the table. And all I'm saying is I just don't see it in the numbers. Right. Zillow's margin, if you will, you know, the difference between what they offer the, the seller and what the seller ultimately can, you know, if the seller says no and they go put it on the open market, Zillow's released research about this. The difference is like 0.2%. Right. So I'm like, okay, 0.2% on a $300,000 house is six grand, right? No, it's less than, it's like $600. Yeah. And who wouldn't pay $600 not to have to stage their house, not to have to put the kids in the minivan and drive around whenever a buyer wants to come visit? I mean, the convenience, the speed, the certainty, all of those things are just, they're real, right? So I think what the industry has chosen to do is to talk about the investors and the flippers who come in, you know, the we buy ugly houses guys who come in and say, we need a 20% discount to market price and just lump them under iBuyer. I'm like, that's fine. I mean, do whatever you need to do, but at least understand that that's not how market makers work, or at least not on the numbers I've seen. You know, if I'm shown different numbers, I'll change my mind, right? Um, but I've been tracking that for quite some time, and I'm pretty confident that at least Zillow, which is the sole remaining market maker, doesn't play, they don't, they don't play those games. You know, they offer market value for the home, uh, and then they sell it for a very, very small premium. And I think what their hope is, they're hoping to make all their money on ancillary services like title and mortgage, right? So, you know, that's the market maker model. But the one that I think brokers have to really pay attention to are the knock fly homes model. I can't even say knock anymore because they, they've abandoned that model. But it's the buy first, uh, sell later model. And that's becoming really popular. And in a certain way, I think I would say this, and I've said it before, if you're a big brokerage and you're not offering that to your agents, then I really question what your value is. The, the, uh, let's, uh, so the concept here, of course, is that they will more or less float you the money to buy the house uh, right. that you want to buy. Uh, it's, it goes back to like a bridge loan. Um, exactly. You know, it might've been referred to back 20 years ago when I first got into the business. Exactly. Um, and that concept is, is that your offer is stronger because you don't have to sell another house. That's right. So, so yeah, I've been calling those the bridge loan model, right? Yep. And that's exactly what it is. It's, I list my house with you, right? 
But instead of waiting for my house to sell, you're going to give me the cash where I go and buy my next house, right? And then, and then now, and then I move out of my house. Now I have no emotional attachment to it. I'm not living there. I'm not putting my kids in a minivan. Now you can stage it, whatever, list it, you know, sell it vacant. And then once that closes, then we settle up, right? It's a brilliant model. And a lot of brokers, a lot of agent teams are really starting to take advantage of that. And there are companies that are now popping up that are essentially trying to be platforms to allow brokers and agents to do that. Incidentally, Knock is now one of them because they've pivoted, they switched their model. Um, I think that model, and I've said from, I don't know, three years ago, when I first started really thinking about iBuyers, I've always thought that brokerages should go down that path because the capital requirements are way lower than trying to be a market maker, right? And the, 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 the capital turn is much faster, right? You're not waiting three months, you're maybe more like four weeks. So it just makes a lot of sense. But, you know, as yet, I haven't seen, you know, the real big guys uh, embrace that. And I, and I don't know why. Uh, let's, I want to chat for just a second, go back to the market maker model uh, sure. and, and that concept, because to me, that is, uh, you know, we almost had what I'm, what I'm referring to with the virus time is like a false start of the market maker model. And I, I totally get where you're saying like that it, uh, on the knock, et cetera, of the world, uh, mm -hmm. the bridge loan models that it's almost like another service that the broker provides and just has in their stable of tools that's right. in, the, in the listing packet. It, but right. that doesn't change the model. That doesn't change how a broker operates, right? I mean, for, for, right. for the, from the high level perspective, there's still uh, the, the, the entire process that goes on. There's still you know, a home that gets sold, so a home that gets bought. But to me, the part for the, uh, the companies that are out there like Open Door, which yes, has a brokerage model to it. Uh, but to me, I think that that's just a, a short term uh, way of having another option in a time where they didn't feel comfortable making purchases. To me, I still think Open Door goes back and starts buying homes in mass again. And as you noted, um, the, the spread it does it not very high, but it can be profitable. And going back to again, what you said, in markets like Arizona, where they're only offering one percent more or so than what a traditional commission would be, uh, it's like why wouldn't you do that? Now, the second piece that I always think about is using the same terminology you just did, but I'm more using it in the financial services mix of market makers. So right. a market maker, you know, essentially has control over the inventory and the distribution of how a stock gets sold because they control that much of the volume of what happens on a daily basis. Uh, and their people own, you know, their clients per se, uh, or their internal trading desks own that much of the stock that they somewhat have control over the price on what happens to a stock on a daily basis. So what prevents Open Door or any Zillow offers or whatever from going and owning so much of the three bedroom, two bath inventory in a market uh, and delaying the distribution of that, that it rises prices. And instead of making it on the spread of, hey, I paid you 
8% less than what it's worth. And I resold it at 6% less than what it's, you know, what it's worth. And so mm -hmm. I'm making that 2% spread. What's preventing them from just going and holding off inventory, which, you know, essentially artificially rises prices. Um, I, I think there's a couple of ways to think about that. Number one is I never thought that the market maker owns and controls inventory, like even in financial stocks and bonds and whatnot, right? Because what, what the market maker is really doing is just creating liquidity. Like if they, if they end up having to buy 10,000 units of pork bellies, it's not like they just want to own the 10,000 units of pork bellies, right? Like that's not their business. Their business is to buy it like at 8 a.m. and then sell it by 8.15. Right. Right. So all they're doing is serving as an intermediary to create liquidity. And I think I, it, for me anyway, I think of market makers like a Zillow offers in exactly the same way. I honestly believe that Zillow, if they could buy a house for $299 and then without staging it, without renovating, without doing anything to it, sell it to another buyer five minutes later for $299,200, I think they would do it. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, it's the old 1% uh, statement, which it, I always talk about, which is if you can make a 1% return on your money, you're still right. positive. Why not do it? Right. right. And it, so it's, it's just right now because of houses, the way, way that we buy and sell houses because of the transaction time. Right now, I feel like the market makers do have to buy a house. Then they have to renovate it, clean it, you know, repair it, do all of that stuff before they can sell it. Right. But I could easily envision a scenario where you know, 10 years out, the normal way we just go about things is, okay, I want to buy a house. You know, so you place an order with the market maker, they go find the house and say, okay, how much you want to sell your house for? 299. Great. We'll buy it for 299. How much you want to buy a house for? 299,500. Great. Here's a house, 299,500. Unrepaired in current, you know what I mean? Like I could see that happening. Right. Uh, and so I think sure. that's the true vision, you know? But you don't you don't see any any of the uh, what's it what is that uh, big company the number one owner of homes it's BlackRock right like, yeah BlackRock Invitation Homes those guys yeah you don't see a model being created where you start controlling enough inventory and you start controlling the prices I mean I I could but I to me that's not a market maker that's a different that's a different beast right that to me is more like a the clients of market makers like hedge funds right right. You know, um, and incidentally, cornering a market is illegal, but I suppose those laws don't apply to, uh, to housing, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so if somebody could corner the American housing market, the problem with that is the amount of money that's involved in that is, it's just, it's, it's ginormous, right? Like U.S. residential housing is the single largest asset category in the world. Like, it, you know, if you think about it, U.S. mortgage bonds power like the global financial system, right? The, the aggregated value of like residential housing in the U.S. is something like, I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say it was like north of $35 trillion, right? Yep. So there's no one like who has that kind of capital to corner the market. Well, I'm not saying that you have to buy every <laughs> single home, but think about it from an inventory perspective, particularly yeah. right now, yeah. to, to control the market. Yeah. So to, to, is if you're a market maker and then you start holding inventory, yeah. um, then you now control it and you don't need a large percentage of the market to control it. You need probably a single digit percentage of the market to control yeah. it because that's how many homes are for sale at any given point. Right? I, I suppose. I mean, I think at that point, you've got to start getting into really sophisticated game theory stuff. 
because the idea is okay we control 10 percent of the so not even five ten percent that's a huge chunk right right we control 10 percent of the inventory so we can set the price on three bed two bath houses the problem is that somebody else controls a 90 percent. so if they break with you that's going to sell first you know it just gets it gets weird right i mean you have to i think you have to do some real real sophisticated analysis and i think the issue is you're taking a big risk because while you're doing that you know, you've got, you've got, you've got maintenance, you have cost of ownership of real estate, right? That has nothing to do with financial costs. Like you have to maintain it. You have to keep the grass mode. I mean, that, that, those are real costs. And I'm not sure that, you know, Zillow offers to, as the only market maker out there. I'm not sure that those guys are interested in that. BlackRock might be, Invitation Homes might be because they have a totally different business model. Right. They want BlackRock funding uh, at one point the Relogy um, buyer model, and weren't they an investor in uh, Open Door? Or am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, Open Door being private, I don't know if BlackRock was. I know. I mean, Open Door's main uh, investor has always been SoftBank, right? Which is part of the explanation why Open Door's in so much trouble. But I know, like, um, Lenar Homes was a big investor in Open Door. Yep. Right, because they see the value in that trade up, right? Um, you know, it's, 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 we'll see what happens. But all I'm saying is like, you know, you think about mortgage market, you think about the housing market and quite frankly, like a hundred billion dollars is really not that much money when we're talking about American housing market, right. like that's how big this is. Right? So, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about, oh, it's the billion dollar company or, you know, Zillow's market cap is what, like 16 billion now. I mean, we're like, oh, they're a huge company. Yeah, they are. But relative to housing, it's still not a lot of money. So I just don't see the market makers ever, quote, to your point, controlling inventory to a point where they can start to set prices and dictate how things. I just don't see it. So let's just because the amount of money involved, that's all. Right. I, I totally get where you're coming from, 100%. So let's say they just go back and open door, uh, et cetera. They go back to the uh, just traditional market maker and providing liquidity mm -hmm. uh, into the market model or mm -hmm. into, the, into that process, right? Um, yeah. And they really dial in their numbers. Like I said, in Arizona, I think the last numbers I saw is they were only a percent uh, more than what a traditional real estate commission might have been. Mm -hmm. and so in that area, you even said it yourself, the same thing I've said for a long time. Why would I ever sell uh, my home and have people traipsing through the house that who knows right. if they have the virus right now um, right. walking through my house, if I could sell it to open door and let them deal with right. it for only, you know, maybe a thousand dollars more or something. Right. right? So if they, um, if they have that, you just lost out. If I'm the bigger, biggest broker in Phoenix, right. uh, then I lost listing it. And I know you said that, that it's the agents. Okay. So it's the, it's the agents. That Your agents. Right. Yeah. Right. They still Your lost, right. it, they still lost listing inventory. That's and right. that means 50% of every transaction in the United States, two and a half plus million transactions every single year are up right. for grabs. Right. Yeah. 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 So no, this, like, look, I buyer market making, this is going to fundamentally transform the industry and society. I'm just saying it's going to take a lot longer than people think. And to me, the greater short-term threat is more the, uh, the, you know, buy now, sell later, the bridge loan model. But why is that a if threat I'm a traditional to a broker? broker? That's the bigger threat. Right? Why is that a threat to a broker? Because if you don't offer it, you're screwed. 
Okay. So it's a threat and an opportunity, right? If you do offer it, to your point, it's one of the arrows in your, in your toolbox, then you've got a competitive advantage over other brokers, right? Or rather, let's put it differently, your agents have a competitive advantage over agents that belong to other brokers, which then you know, helps as a brokerage, it will help my recruiting, it'll help my retention, it'll potentially help my margins, although there are some real question marks around that. Um, but if you don't have it, then you're screwed. I think overall, I mean, I think anytime you can offer a less friction uh, model for it. Right. And one of the things that I've said about Open Door uh, that's a benefit for brokers is if you can figure out where Open Door will pay you for, for sending them business, do it. Because what, what I think will happen going back to market makers is it is providing more liquidity. One of the, the things that I've hypothesized is, and as you know, because I think I got the number from you, mm-hmm. is that there's every single year, good year, bad year, there's somewhere between five and five and a half million transactions, uh, residential transactions in the United States per year, right? right? So what I was suggesting is if you could make the home uh, selling process and the moving process easier, I think that the number of transactions will increase dramatically. I think right. if you're a millennial, um, you're much, and particularly now where a lot of companies are starting to uh, consider long-term, not just through the end of 2020, but, but maybe forever, allowing their, their folks to work remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's going to be lots more moving if you can make that process easier for everybody, right? Agreed. Yeah. But, and that's the huge change. Yeah. The difference is think about the biggest brokers in each market. Where does their business come from that they're selling? Those signs in yards have lots of value, right? And if they're now all open door signs and there's no more, you know, Remax sign or there's no more Berkshire Hathaway sign that's in that yard, does mm-hmm. the value of that brand start to diminish? You're assuming that the brand has value today. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> I, I don't think it does. Right. I, I really don't think there are that many real estate brands that, that can say we have real brand value. And I know that's going to drive the brand marketers and the CMOs crazy and they're all going to hate me, but I'm just, you know, I'm just going based on what I'm hearing from actual agents. <coughs> right. <coughs> and what I'm seeing in the numbers. Right. I just don't see it. So if someone wants to show me data, otherwise I'm more than happy to change my mind. Right. Because, you know, I and mean, we've talked about this a lot, like I have strongly held opinions, but my opinion subject should change based on the actual evidence and the data. Right. So when I see agents and one of the things that I do, um, I, I do a lot of primary research now because my practice changed a little bit. So recently I went out and spoke to 18 different top producing agents, team owners and brokerages. Right. And the top producing agents, they all uniformly say, like, I don't really get anything from my brokerage, right? And this, this explains one of the reasons why traditional split-based brokerages are in so much trouble is because those agents, you know, they know they've got options. They don't really need you, right? Except for legal reasons. They might stick around because they like you and they don't mind that you're making 10%, you know, 10 cents on every dollar. There does come a point where those people look at their numbers and especially with COVID, everybody's looking at their numbers and say, why am I paying my broker $30,000 a year? What am I getting for my 30 grand? Right. And right now I got to say a lot of brands, especially don't have a clear answer to that. 
maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, maybe there are a lot of agents out there who are super happy to pay $30,000 because the Remax brand brings me business. I just haven't heard that. Right. That's well, again, that's just me. I, right? I mean, from an, from, you know, I, I've done some research on this, but not probably nearly as much as you have, but the data that we got back, the number one and two reasons why people joined or stayed with a brokerage was number one was support. They felt right. like their broker was there for them or that a marketing person was there for them and right. they would have to hire or, or take on legal or something like that. So number one was, was good, good team members at the brokerage around them. Number two was technology. Right. Uh, which, you know, obviously was, uh, was a, a nice thing for us to see at Trivis. Um, and right. then everything else kind of fell off the radar after that. And, and, and interestingly enough, commission wasn't on the top of the list, right? So it wasn't their thinking, oh, I want higher splits. Right. Uh, it was really the people and, and the tech at the brokerage uh, right. of why that was there. From Remax's perspective, though, mm-hmm. Remax is still driving traffic or still driving uh, leads potentially to yeah. agents. And I can tell you that without going into stuff that's covered under NDAs of ours with our, <laughs> our customers, yeah. I can tell you that Remax corporate drives lots of leads to their agents through the Tribus CRM system because we're actually one of the only platforms that's rebuilt where we get the lead pushed to us from Remax.com uh, for agents. And so I can tell you there is a lot that's going on there, but, but a lot of what you're talking about is an agent as the client uh, conversation. So why as an right. agent am I there? But to me, the bigger thing that I've heard from you, not particularly so far that we've talked about, but in, in your writings for the past 10 years, yeah. and one of the reasons why I think you, you have this love affair with Redfin um, is because it's the first and really still only brand that is consumer centric from brand down to consumer, right? So let me, let me, let's actually step back a second. And then this actually ends up going into the question you're asked about Redfin, right? So in the survey that you did and, you know, the, the responses and so on, I think there is a case being made that you have to separate the answers from agents and agent teams. That makes sense? Yeah, it does because the team is going to be more self-sufficient, right? Exactly. And, that, and what I'm saying is this, like one of the biggest stories, and God, I've written about this like for the last five years at least, um, and it just doesn't seem to get enough traction and awareness. So maybe this podcast is the start of something. Um, while we were thinking about all these like disruptions like Zillow and Trulia and iBuyers and Open Door, while we were completely distracted by these outside disruptors, my thesis is that the biggest disruption in real estate in the last 10 years is the emergence of the agent team. To me, they are the biggest disruptive force in the industry. And that is not it's one of these like stealth disruptions that's managed to utterly eviscerate brokerages and brokerage value. And people aren't really paying attention to it even now, even now. Right. So when I say, I I have no doubt that your survey, your study is true. I have zero doubt. If I'm an individual agent, the most important thing to me when selecting a brokerage is going to how much support do I get? Right. And the number two is going to be what sort of technology platform, you know, do I have access to? If you're a team owner, both of those are almost non-existent, right? 
So the question becomes, the next question that I think everyone needs to ask is, who is gaining market share? And I got data to prove that agent teams are gaining massive market share at the expense of individual agents. I, I definitely believe that to be the right. case because- If you believe that to be the case and you're a brokerage owner, you have got to think about what is my value to a team with 100 team members, self-sufficient with its own system, own technology, own staff, own admin. What do I provide that team that they're going to keep paying me 10% of their commission? Well, I think if you look at mega teams, right, where you're right. talking 30 plus people on the right. team, I think in those cases, they've, they've gravitated towards a couple brands, uh, Keller Williams and EXP yep. being the, probably the two biggest ones, right? Remax has a number of really great teams. And, right? and that's definitely true because of the model, right? Yeah. However, um, there has been migration of some of those teams yeah. over to uh, EXP and to Keller yeah. over time. And yeah. I'll suggest to you, you know, that I don't, if I'm a broker owner, I don't, I probably was already losing money on that team being part of my brokerage. Correct. Right. And so Correct. from that aspect, uh, it's kind of like, okay, who cares? Uh, for the <laughs> negative, right. So, so let me throw this out at you. You know, who actually is an amazing home for those types of teams? Who's that? HomeSmart. Yeah, they're Realty kind of the, the, uh, the, Benchmark. the under radar uh, type of a company that's in that market. Uh, right. And again, people don't think about it, but here's, this is what people don't think about, right? Because I've written papers on this is because those brokerages do not care about splits. They don't care about sales volume. All they care about is transaction count. Right. Right. Because of their business model. So look, I mean, you know this, I know we've talked about this a lot. At the same time that I'm saying traditional split-based brokerages are dying, I do think that the 100% guys are, are they're, they're really growing. I think they're fantastic you know, for, for the teams. And then the Redfin types, I think, are the next wave. And the reason why I say the Redfin types, and so this goes to answer your question, it's not because they're W2, okay? although that's an important part of the Redfin thing. It's because Redfin's not a brokerage. Redfin is actually a giant agent team. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because everybody works together and you're not really, Correct. if you're an agent, you, you do get a bonus at Redfin for closing deals, but it's Correct. not the majority of your income, right? Correct. It's not the split, right? And yeah. because eight, Redfin controls its employees the same way that an agent team controls their team members. So, I mean, that's a whole other conversation though. Is, I yeah. mean, is it legal for a team leader to control their team members? Of course not. I mean, every agent <laughs> is violating labor law. <laughs> you know this, I know this, we all know this. It's just that no lawyer has brought a lawsuit yet. But the minute they do, I mean, every agent team is, is they're going to lose. But doesn't that change the whole model of teams overnight? Where No, not really. So one of the interesting things is I've been in the last couple of years, I've been talking more and more to team owners who are voluntarily converting over to W2 not because they're afraid of the legal issues, but because they realize they will get much better margins if they convert their team members to W2 employees. Well, that, I, you know, if you uh, pay attention to things I've written in the past at all, <laughs> and you and I have had this conversation, you yeah. know, I ran a brokerage. Yeah. We had traditional splits. We had exactly yeah. three, three um, split options. 
which was 50-50 for any business we generated and gave to the agent, 75-25 for any business they brought in the door, or they could pay a desk fee and get a 95-5 split. Um, But on top of that, I had a team of salary-based agents. Because what I found was my agents weren't doing a very good job working the leads I was giving them. We were generating 3,000 leads a month at a 100-person brokerage. Uh, And so I decided to bring some people that I knew were great and and, uh, put them on salary. uh, And then they could feed their families and and, uh, have insurance and everything like that. And my uh, company dollar went through the roof when that Mm -hmm. happened, Mm -hmm. uh, even factoring in their salaries because uh, the, you know, I could tell them what to do. I could say, Hey, look, you know, it's eight o'clock. You got to go show this house. And they couldn't say no. Right. That's right. So, you know, I've been a big believer for a long time in moving to a salary based approach. The problem is going back to what you were talking about with iBuyers, it's a capital intensive process. If you want to have any kind of big brand like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, but it isn't right. And what I, what I think what I'm seeing is it's not the brokerages that are doing this because they don't have any money. It's teams that are doing this because they do. So, I mean, what are the teams that you've seen doing this? What's the average team size uh, that's doing um, this? You know, I want to say it's not, there's no average, but I'm going to say the minimum that I've heard of was about 15 team members. Okay. Yeah. So you're starting to get up towards that Correct. large or mega team kind of. A Correct. Level. You're starting to get there. And the, here's the interesting thing. Even before that, I've talked to some mega teams where they have their team members on a 30-70 split. And you heard that right. It's not 70-30, it's 30-70. Yep. 30% to the agent. And they're happy to do it because they're busy all the time. They don't want to do lead gen. You know, they're, I mean, that's the other thing about this, right? Everyone, every broker out there pretends like every real estate agent is this entrepreneurial go-getter, you know, want to work their sphere. And it's like, no, th- those personalities are actually really rare, right? Most people just want to be handed a lead and work that lead. I, so, right? Yeah, I actually interviewed uh, a couple podcast episodes ago. I interviewed Peter from Box Brownie. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the topics that we've discussed on a number of my uh, podcasts so far is about the concept of how international real estate is different from it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. One of the things Peter mentioned on that podcast is, you know, most people are are, try to do in the United States, they try to do everything. They're, they're trying to be the listing agent and the marketer and the buyer's agent and everything. And they're really bad at a number of those things, uh, but they're probably good at one of those things. And, you know, he mentioned in other countries like in Australia, et cetera, you don't have that problem because people focus on what they're good at. Right. And it's the same thing with teams. You've got the person who's great at being a buyer's agent, the person who's great at being a marketer uh, or right. an online lead generator, right? Right, right. And that's one of the reasons why teams are so dominant. You know, they're just gaining market share like crazy. So if you're a broker and you've got, we have a client that has 125 teams yeah. uh, in their company right now. But, yeah. you know, the average team is not 30 people, right? right. Uh, it, it's in the, in the single digits. Um, if you're that company, what do you do uh, if, if you're worried about this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have to look at their numbers. I'd have to look at their you know, competitors. I have to look at a lot of things. But so I answer it this way. Generally speaking, I think I have to investigate going 100% or becoming a team of teams. Right? What do you mean by and that? I say go 100% because now I don't care about price. I don't care about volume. 
I just care about transaction counts. And I can have a model working with teams where, you know, I'm not arguing with the team owner about, well, you know, 95-5 split versus 90-10 split. No, it's like, hey, I want you to go out and do 5,000 transactions because you're going to pay me, you know, 395 per transaction. Right? And you're going to keep 100%. So here you go. If I bring you a lead, I will do a 30% override, right? But then you essentially have to go to zero services, right? Well, yeah, because teams don't need services. The only thing you have to provide those teams is legally required brokerage oversight. Right. Right. And you, that's what your transaction fee is for. Right. And that's easy to do, right? That's easy to calculate. Yeah, uh, definitely. But, um, you, you know, as far as teams go, you don't think that there's any team, uh, sorry, I I don't mean to make a a long platitude statement like that. No, go Uh, ahead, man. No, 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 I I don't. What I really meant to say was, do you, do you think that the inevitable ability of teams is that they always will go to where they only care about doing their own thing? Um, or do you think it's possible for a broker to offer good enough services that the teams are sitting there saying, yeah, I, I get something of value from my broker? I mean, I, look, I think it's entirely possible, right? Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm an unusually smart, experienced brokerage, you know, could I offer uh, advice and such to, to the team leaders? I, I'm sure you can, right? I'm sure you can. I, I'm not saying like it's a one size fits all. I'm just saying from a model standpoint, if I'm counting on, I'm so wise and so, so uh, experienced and I have 35 years experience doing transactions and I could advise t- even team owners, you know, on the intricacies, you know, the, like, okay. And if you could convince those team owners to pay you 10 cents of every dollar they make, hey, power to you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not knocking you. Like, that's awesome. I just think about it from the other side. And I think if they were to place themselves, so think of it this way, right? I mean, I'm a consultant, right? What do I do? I offer advice. Could you imagine a broker paying me 10 cents of every dollar they make just so that they could get my advice? Yeah, but I mean, it's, a it's never different. happened. I mean, th- you're bringing dollars in the door and, and supporting them. It's not just like you wrote some some commentary or. You no, what I'm saying that's the thing. Like, as a broker, if you're bringing dollars through the door, if you're bringing them a lead, then you could easily just do an override. Right. So we're talking about brokerage value that is apart from lead generation. At that point, if you could convince somebody to give you a split, that's fantastic. I just don't know if that's. I, let's just put it this way. I just haven't seen evidence that shows that there's, this is sustainable in the long run because those team owners are typically the very best professionals in the marketplace. Like you don't get to be a mega team owner because you're, you're, you're mediocre. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. I think it's you've identified what you're good at and you start tacking people right. into it, right? Right. So when you look at it that way and you say, okay, what do I, what do I really get from this broker? Right? And if it's a big enough broker, it's not even the broker, right? Because you're talking about the local manager. Right. Like, but, okay. So number one is, the, is support, right? So you, what your answer has focused on, and in a completely self-serving uh, tangent uh, and, and going on the side of this question, is do you believe that technology, and feel free to answer any which way you, you, you and know I know I you will. know, but... Uh, <laughs> um, you know, do you think technology from a team inside of brokerage perspective 
Um, yeah. Do you think it's so far gone that the brokerage technology overall is so yeah. ill, uh, you know, set up or or not best suited for a team, or that they don't trust the broker so much that there's no value in that whatsoever? No, of course there's enormous value. I think that's the wrong way to think about brokerage technology, right? So to me, the right way to think about brokerage technology, and I just recently had this conversation with a CEO of a tech company, is that it has now become clean sheets. Do you know what I mean by that? No. If you're a hotel, you can't compete with other hotels saying we have clean sheets. Oh. <laughs> right? Okay. So in a similar way, I think if you're a brokerage today, you have to have technology. The problem is, I don't know that that's big enough a differentiation. And the only, only time it becomes a big enough differentiation is when somebody's already working with you, right? So, you know, in a real way, it's almost like, like, like trying to go on dates, right? And saying, I'm a great lover. The only way that, that, that the other person is going to find out, right, <laughs> is to actually, you know, get into bed with you. So trying to convince somebody to get into bed with you by claiming you're a great lover while everybody else is doing the exact same thing, that's a tough road to hoe. Yeah, so, you're competing well, with your, so okay. if you're a brokerage and you have access to some technology or something that is really differentiated, that's really unique, that they can see from the outside without having signed on the dotted line, without having you know, joined and hung their license with you, then that might be something, right? All I'm saying is right now, I just don't see that in the brokerage technology landscape. Everybody well, makes the exact same claims. Everybody says their, their platform, their tool is amazing. And they have tons of uh, testimonials from their agents saying this is the most you know, awesome banging thing ever. You know, and everyone's saying that. So how do you, if I'm an agent and I have to try and pick between those, like how do I do that? I think, you know, it's almost like you have to get a test drive and see. You, right. Uh, right. And even test drives though, right? Because, you know, I mean, I just recently bought a car, so I know. Uh, There's a difference between a test drive and living with a car for 30 days. It's a, you know? That's a true, uh, a, a true statement. Um, and but, one of the issues with, uh, so one of the issues with that for brokerages and technology and agents specifically, especially teams, is there's massive switching costs. Right. Right. Well, if it were, if it were as easy as, you know, I'm going to try this brokerage for 30 days and if it doesn't work out, I'm just going to move this other brokerage. And it's just, it takes 15 minutes to switch database connections. Then maybe we'd see something like that, like test drives. But right now it's, it's a massive transaction, you know, fee, if you will, a cost to switch brokerages. So it's really difficult. And that's, well, so I'm, yeah. Broker in many cases, if you're a decent agent at all, the broker in many cases will give you, you know, give you money towards the switching costs from sure. a sign, marketing, et cetera, perspective, sure. right? Sure. Um, from a technical perspective, uh, you know, one of the things we, in, in, without being too self-promotional here, uh, but one of the things that we do that has seen a huge benefit is, you know, we onboard the agent for them as part of our, our uh, program that we do, where we, 
we literally, our support team goes and downloads from their old system all of their contacts, cleans their lists, imports all of their email marketing, et cetera. And right. that keeps that switching cost down uh, for that agent to join the team. But you're right, they can't go test drive our system. Now, that all being said, that brokerage I mentioned that has 125 teams though, you know, with, with uh, once again, without being too promotional of Tribus, um, we have over 50% of those teams use our, our system as their primary technology tool. So do you think that's just, we got lucky? Do you think that's um, that, uh, uh, that they trust their broker and, and not to steal their business? What do you think is the impetus to them? I don't know, right? Because like, depending on who you ask, if you go and ask Compass, right? All of their agents are using their software and their technology. If you're going to ask Remax, I mean, they've bet their company on, on Bouge, right? I don't think they bet their company on Bouge. What makes you think that they bet the company on Bouge? Oh, just, you know, it's, it's kind of an internal joke, I guess. I've been saying the last three earnings calls from Remax have all been Bouge, 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 right? Like, I don't know what their corporate strategy is apart from Bouge. Um, Realogy has made, you know, huge bets on, and they keep talking about their internal technology. Like, everyone does. You know, brokerages, large and small, they all talk about their technology. My only point is, unless your technology is, is visibly different from the outside, right, prior to, you know, a test drive. So I guess a way to think about it from an, just, again, think about it as an analogy. If you're offering a Tesla and all of your competitors are offering internal combustion engines, then you've got something that someone can see without having test driven. Do you know what I mean? Yep. But if it's, we have a 5.0, you know, V8 and our competitors are 6.2 V8, you know, I got to test drive those. And right now, right now in the brokerage landscape, I'm not seeing the Tesla. I'm not seeing the, oh my God, this is so obviously dramatically different than anything else that's out there. So I, I talk about all the time, our clients, the thing you're talking about, yeah. I make sure our clients tell their prospect agents, you, you know, you've never, you're essentially, when you come over to our company, you are getting yeah. essentially an outsourced support person for you, your team, et cetera, sure. uh, that will do whatever you want. Cause that's kind of sure. what we sell to the broker. And sure. that's the big differentiator because the truth is no matter what we do, we can have a better interface that looks more slick or does these three features that nobody else does like AI of identifying uh, who's interested in, in what better than what anybody else does. But there's, there's a reason why there's been no, in the past seven or eight years, there's been no major innovation, even Compass and all these guys, Bouge, Remax, et cetera. There's no major innovation that's out there because for the most part, you know, we all know what a broker needs or what an agent needs. I mean, uh, what they need to be successful uh, the, the the problem or the hard part is actually getting them to use it. That's the key, sure. right? Or that that sure. uh, getting them to log in, you know, at least once or twice a week. That's the the killer app. That's well, the that's that's part of the problem. The other problem though is this. I mean, so I'll just ask you, right? If I'm one of those, if I'm an agent team from a Keller Williams, right? Can I buy Tribus? No. Well, here's the thing. I can go buy a dozen other quote platforms. Right. So in a real way, the issue is like, you've, you've chosen to make it your business model that you only sell to brokerages. Right. 
Well, there are plenty of CRM slash platform slash lead gen slash transaction management AI. Like if I'm a team owner, there's no shortage of vendors who will sell me technology. Sure. So unless whatever my brokerage is offering is either a way better, which we just talked about, how do you prove that? Or way cheaper, it's, it's a tough road to hoe. Right. Well, I mean, I think from our perspective, you know, where I was, what I was saying is one of the things I'm really proud of is out of 125 teams, over 50% of them use our system as their primary system. Sure. And, and, you know, I personally think a, our support is a big reason why that's the case. Sure. Because we're essentially doing their marketing work for them and onboarding sure. team members when they add team members. Sure. Uh, but also just from the perspective of, yeah, sure, you as a team, most teams have something like Boomtown or Conversion or, or Commission Zinc, right? right. Uh, they're doing lead gen to, to drive business to that team. And you, know, you can go out and buy those sorts of things, but if you have a good enough tool provided by the broker, you can just drive your own traffic to your broker site and save the 1500 bucks a month for Boomtown. Uh, and I think you know, if you have a good enough site or good enough tools that that's, that's part of it, I think the hard part is convincing the team that that's the case and that it's better or at least as good sure. as Boomtown or, or uh, Commissions Inc. Or I, and like I said, I don't have an opinion on, on all of those level of detail because I think it just comes down to the team owner, you know, what he thinks is worth it, et cetera. Because fact of the matter is somebody's going to pay for all this. Right. Right. Like your support staff, somebody's going to pay for it. Like, first of all, you got to pay your support team because I'm sure they're not working for free, right. right? Which means you have to get paid by somebody. So that means the broker has to pay you since you're only selling to brokers. So the broker has to get that money from some, somewhere. So, you know, maybe that's part of the split, you know, however you do it. At the end of the day, like there's no such thing as free lunch, right? You're going to end up paying for it. So the issue is if I'm a team owner, if I do the math, if I run the numbers and I say, listen, paying my broker 10%, you know, it's totally worth it because it amounts to this. Whereas if I were to go and do this myself, it's more money. You know, those are decisions those, those men and women make every single day. Uh, and I think it could break either way. My only point with all of this is if I'm a broker and I don't offer technology, it's like being a hotel and you don't have clean sheets. You have to have it. You yeah. have to have it, right? Whether it's great or not great, you, you have to offer something because it's just table stakes. Um, the tr problem is once you're past the table stakes, as yet, I'm not seeing something at the brokerage level that's truly differentiated. So, that's all. But, and, and last, last uh, uh, line of question, because we've already gone over time here. Uh, but <laughs> when it comes to, and I, by the way, we've got to one out of the 10 topics that I wrote about. Isn't it amazing? Um, <laughs> we need like a Joe Rogan style podcast in real estate. Maybe I'll do it. Like we'll just take four hours, you know, just, Hey, he just <laughs> made a bazillion dollars with that Spotify deal. <laughs> I know. Right. Uh, maybe you should talk to Inman about being the, the, the podcast, the exclusive podcast. <laughs> um, but okay. So, uh, you know, when you've got, uh, the, uh, these teams, when you've got, all of these people that are out there as a broker in 10, you, you earlier, you mentioned 10 years from now of being yeah. high buyers or changes of models, et cetera, which is, you know, a huge long time period. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and if anything is out there, it's shown that in one year we can flip business upside down on its head with the virus with of course. Swan events, which by the way, if you haven't read, um, 
Rob writes up uh, every year kind of a, a, a future predictions. Uh, sure to be wrong. Sure to be wrong or your money back. <laughs> uh, but some of them are oftentimes spot on. But so, you know, you've got teams, you've got all of this. So from a, a franchise or from a Compass Accenture perspective, and we all know that Compass saying that all of their agents use their system is bunk, right? It, it's just not true, frankly. Um, so, so, you know, Remax talks about everybody, you know, wanting to everybody to be and so invested inside of their Bouge acquisition. Relogy mm -hmm. talks about, you know, the stuff that they're trying to build internally. Berkshire Hathaway uh, tried to build a massive system internally that they had mm -hmm. to throw in the trash can uh, recently. Um, so all of that, uh, and that's out there and all these franchises, why do you think that most of these large companies are unsuccessful and that like a, a perfect example is Relogy bought Zap, right? Mm -hmm. And spent $200 million for buying Zap, a real estate technology company, um, a few years back, three, I think three or four years back now. Uh, and so they spent $200 million on buying this tech company that was there. And now they're throwing that in a trash can. Why do you think that the, these large companies that make this huge PR splash and then three years later, they kind of have to throw it all in the trash can? Uh, I mean, first of all, I don't know that everyone's done that. Like Bush hasn't thrown the trash can, right? I don't know yeah, how Bush is We're only a year into it, right? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, like maybe that becomes uh, the poster child for success. I don't know that Compass is not successful with their tech strategy. We just know that Realogy and Zap didn't really work out, but how much of that is because of Zap? How much of that is because of, you know, internal turmoil inside Realogy? I mean, it's, Let's it's hard back. to say. Let's right? look at KW, and I'm not yeah. talking about Command or Kelly. I'm talking yeah. about a previous iteration, which was called E-Edge. Yeah, right? yeah. So, you know, Gary Keller and his team goes out, go out and, and acquire what they call best in breed uh, in terms of websites and in, they had um, market leader for websites. And if that doesn't date how E-Edge at all, yeah, it, yeah. that tells you something. But so they, you know, buy, buy E-Edge for websites and for CRM, they buy Dot Loop, which, you know, I think Gary Keller has said their buying of that without investing in it was one of his biggest regrets of his life uh, so mm -hmm. far. Um, so they buy Dot Loop and they buy another set of tools and, you know, again, three years later, they throw it on the trash can and they start building their own system. So th there's another one. Yeah. Uh, and, and before Relogy had uh, Zap, they had Market Leader uh, 2, right? So when you look back at them, there is a, a line of dead or, or mostly dead companies that have been involved in selling to large franchises for rollout. Uh, Red, Berkshire Hathaway, when they switched over um, from Prudential to Berkshire Hathaway, they bought Red. There's another company mm -hmm. that's more or less dead, right? So, uh, or nobody talks about. So what, what makes it that when a franchise touches a, uh, a system and rolls out PR, what is it about it that either it doesn't get embedded, agents don't accept it, or you know, it's just over-promise and under-deliver? What is it that makes that pretty consistent? <sighs> You know, I, it's, it's like I said, man, I, we can talk about specific instances, but I don't think we can, it's possible to generalize to that extent, right? In other words, like I know, I know large franchises that are very, being very good luck kind of rolling out their tech platforms, right? Next Home is an example of that. Um, I don't know that EXP, although they're not a franchise, but they're a national brokerage, they're having enormous success with their platform, 
you know, the virtual reality thing that they've got. So I don't know that we can sort of generalize that extent. Having said that, yeah. having said that, if we are going to generalize, I think the generalization has to be that we have companies that are not technology companies trying to play in technology without making the necessary investment to play in technology, if that makes sense, right? And, and I've talked about this from the MLS side for years now, because you know some MLSs like HAR will talk about we spend millions on tech development and so on. I'm like, that, that's great. But have you looked at what Zillow spends on its technology <laughs> yeah. on a quarterly basis? Right. So that's number one. That's just terms of money. Number two, um, who are your, who are you competing against for your tech people? Right. If I'm Realogy and I'm competing against Kel Williams for my tech people, that's one thing. If I'm competing against Google for my tech people, that's a whole other thing. So, in a real way, I think there is a real question to be asked. You need to have technology as table stakes. But if you want to create differentiation using technology, then you kind of have to become a technology company, right? But how, how do you, as a brokerage, how do you morph to be a technology company? I, I think the only way is you get acquired by a tech company. <laughs> Not that you go acquire one because then you're still fundamentally a real estate company. You need to go have Facebook come acquire you. You need to go have Google come acquire you. You need to have, you know, Amazon come acquire you. Uh, to me, that's the only way. But obviously, that means that you as the CEO and chairman of a real estate company, you are now working for a tech company. How many people want to make that choice? Not many. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think it's a really difficult thing. I think, so let's, let's put it differently. If I were the CEO of a large real estate national company or national franchise. I don't think I even go down that road. I think I try to form a strong partnership or alliance with a legitimate technology company. Right. And then I focus on what I do best, which is real estate recruiting, training, all of that stuff. And I have to modify my model so that I'm doing the right thing on the real, on the real estate side. And I have to rely on my partner to provide the technology side. I think that's the only way you can do this. I don't, I don't see a different way, right? Well, let me, let me ask the question uh, in, in an interesting way here. Um, so, Keller Williams, brokerage, yeah. tech company, or both? Neither. They're not a brokerage. They're not a tech company. They're a franchise. Sorry. Fran I should say, you know, franchise or tech company. So, uh, you're saying franchise, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, to me, they're a franchise. And their, their real strength you know, in its real growth has been its training. Right. Like Kelly Williams' training and coaching is second to none. Yeah. Right? Uh, I, I think and everyone I, would agree with that. I agree with you too that they're not a tech company. Um, what about uh, the, the, you know, the one everybody wants to talk about, Compass? Tech company or brokerage? They're a brokerage. I think they would disagree with you. I think uh, they would too. But, but I, I agree with you. Um, yeah. Remax buys Bouge. You know, is it franchise. just a project? Yeah, it's a franchise. Is, yeah. so, uh, and my guess is when I ask you this question, you're going to say Redfin, but I'll right. ask it anyways. Is there any company that is involved in selling real estate that you would call a tech company? Zillow. But they're not a broke. They don't have agents, right? Right. They don't have agents. They're not a brokerage. They're not. A, they're not a franchise per se. But Zillow's a, Zillow's a tech company. 
Redfin is a tech company, right? Uh, Open Door, tech company. Right. You know, OfferPad, not so much. Right? OfferPad is a flipper. I actually think, uh, I think Open Door uh, is more of a financial company than it is of a, of a I, I think their key to success long-term is going to be financial management and the data that they have on houses and being able to figure out what's worth what and what right. needs. Right. right. That's possible, but their roots are in technology. Yeah, that's true. True. So yeah, they're a tech company, you know, first. Um, Redfin is a tech company first. Although God, Redfin is trying its damnedest to become a traditional broker. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those are the things. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is valuable to any of your listeners, right? <laughs> but since we got to wrap it up, I think, you know, the takeaway I suppose has to be, you know, just stick to what you're good at because brokers are some of the best people in the industry and they're really good at some things, right? But understand that the model's really changing and the traditional split-based model is under tremendous stress, not because of people like me, but because of agent teams, right? And unless you figure out a solution to that and how to improve your margins, you know, into the future, I mean, it, it's going to be a real tough, tough going. Well, I think, and I don't think that's anything anybody disagrees with. That's the thing. People might, you know, be like, shut up, Rob. But I'm like, I mean, I talked to one broker last year. He has like 1,100 agents, right? So he's a big, he's a big brokerage. He told me in all of 2019, all of 2019, right, from his 1,100 agent brokerage business, which is locally dominant, he made $11,000. <laughs> Oh my God. If it weren't for the fact that he has a mortgage and a title operation that's attached to it, like he would never do it. Right. Yeah. And most of the people listening to this, they're brokerage managers. Y'all know this is true. Right. You know, this is true. So, you know, I mean, well, you make your, you make your businesses based on that. Right? That's that the average broker has a 3% profitability margin in the best years. In so, the best years. And yep. that, that's the median, which means half are like below that. It's, look, I mean, we all know the reality. The, the problem is most people don't know what to do about it. Or even if they kind of have an idea of what to do about it, they don't actually have the money to do anything about it. So, right. you know, it's, it's a tough place to be. I, like I said, I feel for brokers. And, you know, I, I know from talking to those clients of mine who are brokers, you know, with a lot of the conversation goes like something like this. Well, Rob, you're really right. But man, how do I, how do I make this happen? Because I don't have the money. You know, I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. Well, I think, uh, uh, I think that's an interesting point to leave people with. Uh, I'll throw one thing out there that I'm seeing, by the way, yeah. uh, which is roll-ins. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe that there is a huge opportunity that if you're a broker owner out there and you're saying, I don't have the money, you can roll yourself into a large organization that does have the money. And there are companies out there looking for those opportunities right now. Yeah. And, and you're tied to a large, you know, a large financial beast that can compete, can compete with compass and can move the way that they need to. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. One last question for you, Rob. I ask everybody this question as the very last question. The first yeah. time I come on which is if you could change one thing about the real estate industry, and it doesn't matter what aspect of the real estate industry, but yeah. one thing about the real estate industry, what would it be? It would be removal of the 1099 exemption for real estate agents. I thought you might say that. Yeah. 
Well, there you go. Rob Hahn, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hopefully uh, you can find some time and we'll come back and get to the other nine uh, topics that I had set up for today. Sure. But thank you so much for coming on. Rob Hahn, again, is the managing partner of 7DS and Associates, a consulting company that specializes in uh, the real estate industry. Thanks again, Rob. You're so welcome. And if you are listening to this all the way through, please make sure you hit the subscribe button anywhere that you get podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks so much for listening to Brokerage Insider. We'll see you soon. Take care, everyone.